Hi there, my name is Adam Waters, and I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Bible Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. I'm just so glad that you made the decision to take us along with you this week on life's journey. Here at Grace Bible Church, we are a family of faith who seeks forgiveness, healing, and hope in Jesus Christ. Now, we might all come from different backgrounds, but each of us recognize that the tremendous needs in our lives point us to one place, to God, for His answers, His provision, and mostly for His grace. I hope the following program gives you a new perspective on who God is, who you are, and how you too might find forgiveness, healing, and hope in our Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening. Perfect Fourth of July weekend raining. <laughs> I love the Fourth of July, the festivities, the pageantry, the fireworks, the grill outs, the families that you see together celebrating, um, the sense of excitement in the air. I love it when you see the flags waving. Um, and it invokes that strong sense of being an American, right? And all that goes along with that. And of course, we're remembering uh, the fact that our, you know, our country had independence, right, and, and gained independence. Uh, but we're also sort of celebrating a little bit larger kind of what it means to be an American, right? the land of the free, the home of the brave. And so it can begin to sort of peak in us that sense of, uh, of um, uh, richness, the rich tapestry we have. Um, and we like to think of things like being uh, brave and courageous, right? And sometimes that can lead us a little bit into this sense of the, you know, the rugged individual who sort of is riding out to meet that adversity, right? You picture conquering like the American West historically, right? Um, conquering, right? And, um, and uh, you know, you can sort of get into this area where, where we, we begin to get into areas that uh, uh, may not always be centered to where we are in our relationship with the Lord, right? That idea of sort of independence, a personal independence, or this idea of a, a rugged individual, right? And so there's a challenge for us as we're in Independence Day of where we identify do we identify more as Americans or do we identify more with the Lord? What really goes down? Um, I do, though, enjoy the festivity and, and sometimes like to talk up that idea of the, the, the adversity. I was on a, a business trip in Germany uh, with my brother for some software that we were deploying at a large, uh, well-known auto company. And, uh, you know, my brother began to sort of talk about the American West and its rigors, you know, the, the fact that, you know, there's, you know, dangers, there's volcanoes and earthquakes and wild animals and <laughs> other kinds of adversities. I think he was trying to paint, paint up this sort of romantic idea. And this German uh, lady, she just, uh, she just said, no wonder American vacations are so short. You might never come back. Um, so, 
we can sometimes lather in that idea of being uh, American and overcoming the adversity with our sort of our own individual sense. Um, what I want to look at today is what adversity looks like from the standpoint of us as followers of the Lord. And what I want to hopefully uh, try to show you is that in the midst of that adversity, it's not a self owned thing. It's not a rugged individual thing where somehow we muster up the, the, the courage by our own will and, and overcome that and, and therefore, you know, sort of exude something of ourself. But I want to hopefully try to show you that actually in the midst of adversity, the Lord is the one that is near us. And sometimes the adversity is a, such a difficult nature that we're brought to the end of ourselves and we don't have the means in and of ourselves to make it through that. And that during those times when we call upon the Lord, he is not only near, but he reveals something of who he is and he saves us out of that. And as a result of that, we see something of the Lord, we experience something of the Lord that transcends the adversity, that transcends even our sort of our own lives and takes us up to a higher plane of, uh, of significance and meaning. Paul said it like this. He says, momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. Okay? So paradoxically, instead of saying, I just want to avoid adversity or be the more American thing, I just need to put my nose to the grindstone and go through it. It's actually an opportunity for us to say, no, this is something that's really happening to me that's beyond me. I need the Lord for his help. And in the process, have our eyes taken off of us and fixed upon him. Okay, so what we're going to look at today is uh, one of my favorite stories. It's out of Matthew 14, 22 through 33. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and Open up Matthew 14, 22 through 33. I'll just read the whole thing for starts and then we'll go through it in four different sections. Immediately he, that's Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side. Well, he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, 
the wind stopped, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. Lord, I want to ask that as we unpack this passage, that you'd guide us into the truth. I want to ask that you'd show us something of your glory. Um, I pray, Lord, that you'd be um, animating your word. Um, I pray that you'd be interpreting it to us with your Holy Spirit and specifically drawing application. Um, Lord, there's a lot of different contexts that people are coming from. Most certainly, very difficult circumstances um, in their relationships um, and, and uh, with each other or situations at work or financial or, or health concerns um, and concerns about well-being and the future and children. And I want to pray that you you'd do something um, that sets our hope upon you and gives us a very real sense of your presence in the midst of those difficulties and a sense that you are at hand and a sense that you will save us when we call upon you and allow us to see uh, something of your glory today. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing is that the Lord is near to us in the midst of our adversity, <laughs> right? We don't always see that. You're going through a difficult time and what's a common thing to say? Where is God in the midst of this adversity or this difficulty. If God were a loving God, he wouldn't have allowed this difficulty to happen. Or if God were a powerful God, he would have stopped it. Or if God were a wise God, he would have known that that was an, an issue that would have happened here, right? And so we either say, well, God isn't present, or we sort of have a different view of God. Well, Peter and the other disciples were kind of in a similar situation, right? Um, it says in verse 20, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away, right? So where were they before this? If you remember right before this, uh, uh, they had been out and Jesus said, come away and rest for a while. <laughs> And when they came away and rested for a while, there were large crowds that were there, right? And they stayed with the Lord for a, a, a while. And Jesus, uh, the disciples are like, send the crowds away, you know? Uh, get, they need to get something to eat. And, and Jesus is like, you give them something to eat, right? And so the Lord performed the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. So now on the heels of this, uh, the Lord makes them get into this boat, Right? And he went up on by himself to pray, on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. So Jesus is the one who is directing his disciples what to do. And their obedience to directing him what to do is the thing that actually leads them into this circumstance where they're out on the water at nighttime. Uh, the circumstance had to be very uh, concerning. Some of them were trained fishermen, right, or fishermen by trade. But the water can be a really scary place at nighttime. If you've been out on the water at nighttime, there's a sense of just a, a deep blackness. And particularly more when the wind begins to stir up 
the, the water, right? You could just imagine they're, they're, they're out to shore. It's the fourth watch of the night that's in Roman time between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. And you, uh, they've been battered by the waves and the wind is against them. And so they've been progressing for quite some time in the midst of that. And if you're the disciples, this is not uh, uh, <laughs> your, your favorite time out on the water, right? Uh, you're weary from having been with these crowds for a couple of days. Send them away. No, you give them something to eat. And now finally you think the time of reprieve and rest is going to come. Finally we get to go away. We're obeying Jesus. And what happens? Immediately there is additional trouble at hand. Right? There's the waves being stirred up. There's the wind that's against them. They've been rowing for quite some time. If it's near evening at the time Jesus sent them away, they've been probably on the rowing or whatever they do, however they get around for six hours or so, right? Um, they're quite a ways from land, a couple of miles now, right? So Jesus is the one that directs his disciples what to do, and they encounter difficulties as they follow Jesus's direction. And then something amazing happens. Jesus comes to them in the midst of that situation. He was the one that sent them out there, but he begins walking to them on the water, right? And so it has to be a very kind of surreal experience, right? You see this darkness around you, the wind, the waves, and all of a sudden, there is this thing that you see on the horizon. You can't quite make out what it is. Maybe, I, I sort of picturing a, like, glowing a little bit. Was there, like, a moon that was sort of, like, downwards? There's sort of, like, a, a sprinkle of rain. It doesn't seem like it. It seems mainly like wind and waves, right? Um, but things are very black. It's not like you got this, you know, Chicago skyline on the horizon, right? This is in older times where they didn't have light. And then all of a sudden, you see this picture coming to of this person coming to you. It had to be a very disturbing thing. What were the disciples feeling? We'll get to that in just a second. But first I want to ask, is God near to us in the midst of our adversity, right? Just because he came to them, what about us? So take a look at Psalm 46.1. It says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. God is a refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble, right? And Jesus said at the Great Commission, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age, right? I will never leave you or forsake you. So Jesus is not only with his disciples going out to meet them in the midst of this adversity, but he's also with us in the midst of our adversity by virtue of his word. Not as a matter of what we see or perceive, but by virtue of what he says to be true. So what can get in the way of that? Well, what got in the way of it for the disciples? That leads us to our second point. We may not recognize the Lord and become afraid. The problem isn't the fact that the Lord isn't near. The problem is, is that we may fail to recognize him right? We may not see the reality that he's here. We may not pay attention to his word and what he says. Or we may begin to sort of put our understanding of what he's, uh, is actually happening upon him. The disciples do a similar thing. If you take a look at 
verse 26, it says, When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. So the disciples mistake Jesus for a ghost. Why do you think they mistook him for a ghost? Was it that he was too far in the distance? Was it that, um, they, you know, they couldn't quite make him out? Was it the fact that, you know, being sort of sailors, maybe they heard stories of ghosts on the sea and stuff like that? Or maybe it was the fact that something is out there that's floating above the water. Probably the third one, right? I don't think it's, oh, it's just a physical thing. Somebody is out there on the water. None of their experiences had ever uh, readied them for what they were seeing now. And as a result of that, they began to sort of grab at different ideas of what it had to be. People can't walk on water, right? It couldn't have been, couldn't be that, could it? Right? John the Baptist was recently beheaded. Maybe it's a ghost. So when we encounter adversities like they're encountering, sometimes our tendency is to reach for ideas that we have of what is happening rather than what is actually happening, right? Um, I remember this time I was on a, a trip with the high schoolers in uh, Wyoming, and uh, it was near the last day of one of the last days of the trip. So we were on our way back, and we were staying at a, at a church, um, Moorhead, Wyoming. <laughs> and uh, in this church, uh, being one of the last days, we ordered some pizzas, and we decided, oh, it's okay if we stay up a little bit longer. You know, some of the mission aspects are gone. And as we're staying up, people are beginning to get tired, and one by one, they're uh, falling off. And, and so there's sort of a smaller ring of us standing around. And uh, being in a church, it can be kind of a scary experience. You don't really know the church or the, the uh, you know, the area around there. And so our imaginations began to go a little bit wild. And <laughs> there were these glass doors. And somebody was looking at one of the glass doors and, and said, can you imagine like if somebody like showed up at that glass door? And they put their hand on it, and they opened it. The person that said that was me. <laughs> good, good leadership. Um, and, and so people are like, yeah, I can like imagine. Like, it, it, you know, kind of scary thing. So we're all kind of a little nervous now, and we decided, well, okay, let's, I guess it's time now to go to bed, right? And so we go to bed, and I'm the last one to shut things down, and the girls are in their area, and the guys are in their area, and all the lights are off in the, the main sanctuary, and our door is sort of adjacent to the main sanctuary, and my uh, uh, sleeping bag is right by the door, another good leadership. <laughs> you know, the guarding the entrance, right? And uh, all of a sudden, I see this light go on outside the window, and in my mind, it has to be one of those motion sensor lights. So there has to be some, somebody that's approaching the church. I'm like, oh no, you know, I'm thinking about what I was thinking. And then I saw the light in the sanctuary go on. And it was absolutely chilling for me because I was the last one in at the door of the church. And here now the lights are going on. And so I thought, oh no, I was remembering the whole incident, you know, didn't think it's a ghost, but it's not good. 
And uh, I thought, well, I probably should check it out as the leader. And so <laughs> I uh, opened the door, and it turns out it was my brother who was also on the trip. Unbeknownst to me, there was another door that he had gone out that I didn't know existed, and he had a few final things, right? So what had happened in my mind was I had begun to interpret, based on my presuppositions, a scenario that didn't actually line up with reality. And we do that sometimes, don't we, right? Um, What are the kinds of things that we imagine in the face of adversity about God and his character that don't line up with what he says in his word of who he actually is? What are some of the filters that we see him through? Well, one is maybe he isn't there, right? Maybe we had a, um, uh, a mother or a father who abandoned us when we were younger, who was never around. We could say, if that's what, that's, that's what God is like. He's like that. He's a God who, who abandons. Or maybe we had a, uh, a mother or a father who was abusive, who was harsh towards us. Well, that's what God is like. He might be around, but he's not good. He's not loving. He's, he's dangerous, right? He's angry. He's vindictive, right? Or maybe we had a, a, you know, somebody in authority in our life, a, a leader or something like that, who made strong demands of us. So, right, he's very sort of demanding, right? And we can begin to sort of say, well, either God isn't there, or if he is there, he's not going to help me in this particular situation. But what happens? Well, the disciples become afraid because they see Jesus differently than, we actually, than he actually is, and we can do the same thing. So how does the Lord respond? Well, the disciples cry out, it's a ghost, but Jesus speaks to them, verse 27. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, you have little faith, why did you doubt? So, Jesus is near to them. He's on the water with them, and they have this wrong picture of who he is. They think that he is a ghost. What does he do? He corrects their misunderstanding. The first thing he says is, take courage, it's I. Jesus cares about the, uh, the fear that they have, the sense that they uh, are, are uh, not only in this adverse situation, but are afraid, not of the wind and the waves right now, but of him. So he reminds them of who he is. Take courage, that's I. Why is that so significant? Well, because previously they had been on the water in the midst of a storm, right? And Jesus had rebuked the wind and the waves and it had become perfectly calm. Previously, when they were hungry and the crowds didn't have any food, Jesus says, don't send them away. They don't, you give them something to eat. And he took care of what their needs were. Previously, there was a leper who no one would have wanted to associate with socially. And he runs up to Jesus and he says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. He says, I am willing, 
be cleansed. So Jesus had done all these things that had shown something of his power over nature, something of his grace and compassion towards other people, both for their physical needs as well as for their, not only their hunger, but their other physical needs of like sickness and stuff like that, right? And so when he says, take courage, it's I, the whole picture of who Jesus is, is being interpreted within that framework. For Jesus to be the one on the water walking means it's not only not a ghost, not another source of danger, but somebody who is all of who he is in that situation. Well, for Peter, he wants a little bit more, right? And so Peter, very, very bold, says, Lord, it if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Right Now, that's a bold statement. You have to imagine you just thought this person out there was a ghost. All that that person has said is, take courage, it's I, and you've heard something of what that voice sounds like, but how do I know it's not a ghost? It's like trying to trick me or something, right? And moreover, if I'm in this boat and I'm a couple of miles from land and there's all this water that's being stirred up by the wind, and I step out of that, and that person over there isn't who he says who he is, I'm going down. Of course, if he isn't who he says he is, I'm in trouble too, So this is kind of a a no-win situation. But just slow down a second. This has to be a terrifying thing. What would you do? What would you do? Would you ask the Lord to do something special for you to confirm himself to you? Or would you, like maybe some of the other disciples, wait to see what's going to happen? I'm very impressed with Peter's willingness to ask something of the Lord. Now, we have to be careful because obviously it's written, not, don't put the Lord your God to the test, right? But Peter in this case is asking the Lord to do something on his behalf. He's not saying, I'm coming. <laughs> He's saying, if it is you, command me to come to you. He leaves it in Jesus' hands what to do with that and allows Jesus to affirm him not only through his word, but through his action. So, Jesus says to him, come. And you have to imagine what those first few moments would be like. What did it feel like? What did it seem like with this surreal picture? Jesus is probably, I'm, we don't know how far he was away, but he wasn't right next to the boat, right? <laughs> um, he's close enough that you can hear him talking to you above the wind, but far enough away that you can't necessarily make him out perfectly in the midst of everything else, right? So perhaps the end of the auditorium is just a guess, right? That's a long way to cover. So you just imagine getting out of the boat and that first step of trust. What happens? You put your foot down. What's that like? And then you do it again, and your eyes are laser-focused, on this person, and you do it again. Um, I have, uh, I love helping, they're older now, <laughs> but my nieces and my nephews, it was always fun to try to help them walk, right? You see them taking their first couple of steps kind of gingerly at first, right? And you're kind of supporting them and holding them up, and they're making it farther and farther and farther. And of course, the farther they make it, everybody's cheering them on, right? Um, If you're a disciple watching this sort of thing, you have to be thinking, this is, what's going to happen? 
right? So he makes it, and he keeps going farther and farther and farther towards Jesus. But then something happens. He sees the wind and the waves, and he begins to sink. And his cry of his heart is, Lord, save me. What does Jesus do? Does he say, nope, deal's off, you made it this far, but not going to help, right? No, he reaches out his hand and immediately pulls him up. And there's this incredible picture you get there of how the salvation happens, right? What do we tend to think? We tend to think of um, our salvation as uh, uh, kind, of, kind of the focus can sometimes be on me and my faith, and I do it once, and then it happens to me, and now I'm good to go, or I'm in a difficult situation, and uh, I call on the Lord, and then something quite happens that I can't necessarily discern, but I knew the Lord was behind it. No, no, there's a very explicit salvation going on here. They're out there on the water away from the boat, and Jesus's hand is reached out and supporting his weight. That's how I like to picture it happening, right? Jesus could have just made him like resurface, <laughs> right? But instead, how does he save him? He reaches out his arm. There's a sense of the power to now continue to stand flowing through him in a very direct, active kind of a way that demonstrates where that salvation is coming from and how it's happening. And Peter has some strong words for him. You have little faith, why did you doubt? They're tough words. And we have to say, well, what about the rest of the disciples? They're the ones who are back in the boat. <laughs> what about their faith, right? Um, I don't think that their faith was greater than Peter's here. It doesn't seem like they have the high ground here. That's just my opinion, right? But it's, it's hard to imagine them being like, oh, that's Jesus. Of course, we got this. You can go walk on the water while the rest of us chill here. That's cool. I, I, it doesn't seem that way. It seems to me like Peter, who's the bold one, who usually is the one first to recognize more of who the character of the Lord is, is the one that's taking that step. And yet, now that he's closest to Jesus, he's the one who draws down these words. It doesn't say it's a rebuke. Maybe I used that word earlier. Jesus simply says to him, you have little faith, why do you doubt? Questions can be a very provocative thing, can't they? Um, especially when you're being coached or you're learning something. Um, I like to study. I can't say I always like to. I study violin. How about that? <laughs> um, I take with a professor out in Naperville who's been teaching for over 50 years. <clears throat> he loves the Lord. He's phenomenally gifted at teaching, incredibly insightful. And lessons can be a difficult thing because most of the time the lessons aren't, look at what a great job you're doing, right? Most of the time it's this is wrong and that's wrong and that's wrong. And it can be a very sort of a, 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 an introspective sort of a thing, right? But when he asks those questions, why are you doing it this way? What about this? What's my reaction? Oh, you must not love me? No, you want me to become a good violinist. You're actually diagnosing the things that need to happen that can get at the core of the issue to make me a better violinist, hopefully. <laughs> and... Uh, he asked a difficult question one day. It was, it was chilling. It was about a month ago. I did not like it. Um, I was in this lesson, and uh, 
Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto is challenging, um, and apparently he detected something at the very beginning of the piece because he goes, well, end of the lesson, he's like, well, you're an intelligent person. You obviously work very hard. And yet, that A, you emphasized it. Why? <laughs> and I have to say that that why, cut to the core, I've been thinking about ever since. You can see here I am still talking about it, right? <clears throat> the difficult questions that a teacher can ask can sometimes unpack the deep underlying issues that actually draw us to a deeper understanding. When he asked Peter the question, why did you doubt, after saying this is who I am, take courage, in the midst of that adversity, it puts the, the issue squarely on what happened in my relationship to where my eyes were fixed and what I thought the issues were in comparison to with what you say you are and who you actually are and what you have just done for me as I have been walking on this water and now my hand is holding you up. I think the question here produces a deep introspection, probably on Peter's part, of, yes, why did I doubt? Why did I think that the waves or the circumstances, the adversity that I was in, was somehow more dangerous, more threatening, more powerful, more gripping than who this person is who walked to me on the water in the midst of my difficulty, who identified himself, and by identifying himself, showed, reminded me of all of who he was and, and his care and his love for me, and is now saving me. He had to have cut through. And we look at Peter and we're like, well, how could he have done that? Well, you get out of the boat and step on the water and walk towards Jesus and then come back and, a and answer that for me, right? I think this is an example where Peter is learning something more of who the Lord is and by virtue of taking those steps uh, is sort of brought perhaps to his limit. And that can happen sometimes to us in the midst of our adversity, right? We'll get to that in just a second and see that we'll see more of who the Lord is in the midst of that. Um, but the Lord saves us when we call upon him. What about us? Take a look at Psalm 145, 18 through 19. It says, The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. If God is near to us in the midst of adversity, and sometimes the adversity actually comes because of him, we can distort our understanding of what's happening, but God is near and he is willing and ready to help us. The Lord is an ever-present help in time of trouble. And that salvation takes on the fullest scope of what that salvation looks like, right? At first, it is a life-death kind of thing. Lord, save me. You've got to do something in my life or it is over. From an eternal standpoint, right? I know I'm not right with you. I know that I have rejected you and I've lived for other things. Would you save me? Would you, you're, would you forgive me? Would you be near? Would you give me the promise of eternal life that you said, right? Um, but there's also a qualitative aspect of the fullness of life. Jesus said in John 10, I've come that they might have life and have it abundantly, Right? And so there's also a sense of, Lord, save me in the fullest sense of what that means 
as it radiates out into my relationships with other people, loving, thriving relationships that the Lord is pleased to see happen. Questions of fruitfulness and legacy and meaning and purpose, right? All the things that the adversity causes us to call into question, right? And that's why we feel the weight of that adversity because it's in some way holding us back from what we view as the, the potential, the good life. And yet over here, Jesus is offering that. And when we call on him, he is the one who gives us life and gives it abundantly and makes us fruitful. What's the outcome? What happens? Well, when we, see an ex- uh, when, when we call on the Lord in the midst of our adversity and he delivers us, we see and experience more of who the Lord is. Okay, so when he saves us, we experience more. How did that play out for the disciples? Well, verse 32, when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. Right? It'd be one thing to say, well, uh, we're here alone. Jesus has forgotten about us. We need to make matters and, and take them into our own hands and make it happen, right? Sometimes we can do that. I don't know where God is here. But what happens when we do that? Well, most likely we fail. <laughs> if we don't fail, we will fail eventually in the, in the long run, right? Because all of us have a crisis that's coming at the end of our lives, death, where we're not able to do anything more on our behalf. I was in Rome, and uh, in, in Rome, you see these amazing uh, tributes to Western civilization. Um, in the Vatican Museum, there's a number of different halls. And in one of these halls, there's this incredible promenade. And this promenade, it, it goes to like this vanishing point. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. <laughs> it's that long, and it's wide, and it's high. And on the side of it are all these uh, tapestries and murals and other kinds of beautiful things. And you get the sense of like, oh, the, all the wealth of Western civilization, right? And you see the bust of this person and the bust of that person. And it, you know, it, it can dawn on you, wait a minute, all these people are gone. All of their trials and things that they struggle with to try to gain their legacy are cut short. They can no longer do anything that affects their memory. Instead, they are subject to the whims of... <laughs> Uh, teens capturing them on phones and putting them on TikTok, not for their sake, but to say that they were with them. You know, they were there in the, in the Vatican. And so it, it sort of underscores this idea that all of us face um, the end where we can't alter our destiny anymore. We need God to do something for us. And then when we are in the course of adversity in life, we see little bits and pieces of that, maybe a health crisis or uh, issues with parents or with children, right? Um, But when we call on the Lord and the Lord is willing and ready to do something on our behalf, we see something more of his character, don't we? That's what Peter saw. He didn't know now that Jesus was just able to walk on the water. He knew that he was willing and ready to call him to himself and save him in a very kind of proactive, holding way. In our circumstances, when we're brought to the end of ourselves and we say, well, I'm in this particular situation and I'm out of money and the Lord provides, we learn something of the Lord's generosity, 
right? When we're at our wit's end and we don't have answers and we're confused and then the Lord shows us a path forward, we learn something of his wisdom, right? When we uh, are struggling and, and all of a sudden the Lord delivers us in, it delivers us in a way that uh, couldn't be accessed with our, uh, our, our, our methods, we learn something perhaps of his power, when we realize all that's against the backdrop, oftentimes of our not fully knowing who he is, we realize something of his graciousness and kindness. Um, for me, this is uh, uh, one of the things that happened that really underscored this. I was on another trip out west in um, Colorado this time, and some of you have heard this story a gazillion times, but many of you have not. So bear with it this once, and I won't tell it for a while. Some people are laughing. Yeah, they know it. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> but... Um, I was leading this trip with some other adult leaders, and this had to have been two, 2009, right? So um, smartphones are just kind of new. Uh, we don't yet have the prevalence you have now where you just dial in like a map location, you look and you go and you, you find it. Like you had to know where you were going, right? And you would usually look on a map ahead of time. Well, on this particular trip, the, uh, the youth pastor, Eric, he decided that maybe he wanted to, I don't know, improvise. No. <laughs> we were about four or five hours away from the, uh, the uh, camp on this whitewater rafting trip. And uh, it was around four o'clock, and he thought it would be idyllic to have this nice picnic with 40-some-odd students in the mountains somewhere. So we're along the Arkansas River, and there's this broad valley, right? The, the mountains are there, but like there, like 20 miles that way, where you see them in the distance. And so he says, hey, can you just like find us a spot? And I was like, okay. <laughs> and... Um, so I'm in the lead van. I think there were three or four, I can't remember, vans, a lot. And uh, I didn't have any idea where to go, but I had in my mind, I had this sort of picture of like some beautiful setting by like a mountain with kids like eating and, you know, water and trees and mountains, right? You know, it's a good match. And um, so I simply asked the Lord, I was like, Lord, would you give us a good place to eat? That was my prayer. Give us a good place to eat. And so I began driving, and I see this gravel road, and I turn down this gravel road, and we're heading towards the mountain range. Now, that's, that's a plus, right? But the gravel road is a lot longer than I think. It's not one miles or two. It was something like 12 or 13, right? And we kept going, and the dust is being kicked up by the vans. And it, well, you begin to hear rumbles in the background. Where is he taking us, right? And of course, in my mind, I don't know. <laughs> west, go west, young man. And so I'm, I'm there and I'm driving along this, this road and finally a break, right? We pick up the mountain road and the, the road becomes this nice concrete road and, uh, sorry, asphalt. And, and um, as we're driving up, I'm hoping for something. And yes, now this stream meets the, the, the road and I'm like, this is it, right? And I'm seeing the stream, but it's kind of small and there aren't a lot of good spots. And so we're driving fairly quickly um, and I see this small clearing. It couldn't have been bigger than a handful of these pews put together. And my sense was, is that it? It's too small for the size of group we're having. And so I passed by. And no sooner did I pass by than I was so mad at myself. I was like, that was it. I bungled the play. I missed it. And so I keep driving a while. The creek leaves. We're left with only trees. And I'm thoroughly dismayed. And in defeat, I pull over the van along the side of the road and I get out and a couple of students get out with me. And there's not much to see. There's like this maybe 30 or 40 foot embankment on the left. And I was like, well, let's go up there. Maybe we'll get like a better 
vantage point, right? And so we climb up to the top of that. And as I look out on the other side, there is this huge mountain lake with picnic tables set up and mountains painted in the background. When the Lord does something and comes through for you in a way where you don't have the answers and you're in a situation of difficulty or of adversity, you learn something about his character that makes a strong impression on you. And it elevates your life to live for things that matter more. Is it worth it? I want you guys to think long and hard about this. Is it worth it? Peter didn't have to go out into the water. He didn't have to be in that boat. He could have been back in Capernaum enjoying the the fishing business or whatever. But instead, he was in this position because in some way, the Lord had sent him there. What was the next day like? What was the day like after that? Oh, that was a bad night. that, That storm was really bad. I wish we weren't in it. Oh, I nearly sank. The Lord rescued me. I guess I have little faith. No, I think that there's something transformative that happens in them. That was the craziest thing I ever saw. Jesus walked in the water and I went out to get him. And now that experience is locked in my mind, what that's like. I'm lifted up to a whole different view of what the world is like and lifted up to a plane where somehow the ordinary concerns seem smaller. And if Jesus can do that for me, maybe he can do that for other people too. And there is a hope and there is a future. Is that worth it? Is it worth it putting our trust in the Lord in the midst of adversity to see something about him so that when we see something about him, we perceive who he is and the affections of our heart rise towards him? If you're in the midst of adversity right now, I want you to know the story isn't over. You may be feeling like the Lord is not near. He is near. You may be feeling like, well, he's near, but he's not capable. He is capable. You may feel like he is capable, but he's not willing. He is willing. I want us today to put our hope in the Lord. First, for the promise of eternal life, but let it radiate out into our relationships with each other and not get bogged down by what our perceptions are of who the Lord is in our own understanding, but who he really reveals himself. Now who do you say that I am? There was another time... Of course, that the Lord stretched out his hand to save us. For Peter, he stretched it down, but this time he stretched it out, right? Um, Jesus went to the cross to pay the penalty of our sins with the promise that whoever calls upon him will be forgiven of their sins and be given eternal life. We celebrate that time in communion. Paul is writing of the communion in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're going to go into a time of communion. I'm going to pray here uh, for that time in a second. Um, As we take 
the communion elements, a lot of times we can get very introspective, and it's not necessarily wrong, okay, about my walk with the Lord. But today I really want us to focus on remembering him. I want us to remember what it was like for him to encounter his own adversity. And in the midst of his adversity, his belief in the goodness of God and his willingness to go through all of that because he trusted in the character of God. Okay? I want us to remember his death and sacrifice on his behalf and the greatness of who he is. Lord, thank you for um, who you are. Thank you for the incredible power you have over your creation. Thank you, Lord, that um, you're people who have called us to yourself and that you're near. Thank you, Lord, that you're a God who is willing and ready to save us when we call upon you. Father, I want to pray that you'd uh, cause the meditations of our heart to be on you now during this time of communion. And I want to ask that you uh, reveal something more of who you are in a way that um, begins to put our lives in context in relationship to you and cuts through some of the... Um, some of the things that around this time of year we can wrongly identify with as Americans. I pray, Lord, that you'd cause us to identify instead more with you as your people who have been saved and who have become uh, partakers of your life because of your goodness and of your power. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor Adam here. Well, I want to thank you for tuning in to Grace Bible Church, and I would love to hear what you thought of today's program or of ways that we can be praying for you and with you. So check us out on social media at GBCL. Also, if you would like to support our ministry, you can give securely at our website at www.gbclm.org. Now remember, God loves you, and so do we.